Welcome back to the second hour of At Your Service right here live on Camo X. My name is Dave Simons, oh, financial guy by day, the, the job that pays the bills and puts food on the table and pays for expensive weddings, uh, but occasionally getting let out at night to host this very show we call at your service on the weeknight. So um, thank you so much, folks, for uh, tuning into Camo X and specifically this very show as I'm coming to you remotely from a small little abode down in North Texas, driving up from the wedding venue in Dripping Springs. I had never been there before, a little west of Austin, down in the heart of what they call hill country. Just beautiful down there. And apparently Dripping Springs really is sort of a wedding mecca my daughter and her then fiance, now husband, were well aware of it. And they're making their home now in Texas. And, and uh, my daughter came down to Fort Worth in 2013 to go to college. Ten years later, she's never left. So she and her husband will reside in Houston, both have jobs. He's from Houston. So I lost my baby girl to Texas ten years ago, and I ain't getting her back. So I will be spending a little more time down here in the Lone Star State with my lovely wife. Uh, at least I still have my son who's hanging around St. Louis for now. For now. We'll see um, where life takes him in a few years. So do you have all of your NCAA brackets filled out? Yeah, you have, a, what, another day or so to get that done. I did mine. I do three every year through the ESPN site. Um, I, I just think that's the easiest way to do it. And I, I'm not a gambler. Literally, I, I do not go to casinos or boats. I don't have any problem with it or any issues. I just don't like to lose. It's not in my nature to lose. And so I just, I know people do it for entertainment. That's great. I do other things for my own entertainment. So even when it comes to the fun things like filling out your NCAA bracket, I don't want to spend a dollar on it. I don't care what the potential pool is. So ESPN is great. I do three pools every year. I do want, the first one is very traditional in that I have most of the favorites winning. So I always do that one where, the, yeah, there's an upset or two. Now that generally doesn't do that well because we know favorites lose all the time. All right. You do a bracket that's got a lot of favorites and Typically, by the time you get to the Sweet 16, you are done. Now, it did help me once. I forget when it was a few years ago, where it was one of those years where there just weren't a lot of upsets, and I did well on that first one. The second one, I add a few more upsets, and the third is my crazy one. And every once in a while, that becomes my big hit, where you have those years where it's like, you don't hardly have any number one seeds in the final four. And you've got, you know, even a double digit seed that makes the elite eight, if not the final four last. And, and by the way, in all three brackets, I do pick a different winner for all three. Last year, I actually did pretty well. My traditional first one didn't do that great. Uh, it was my second one, middle one, where I had a number of upsets, but still some favorites getting in there. And I finished in the 94th percentile. That might have been the highest I've ever finished because I actually got the winner. And a lot of my Mizzou friends, and I'm a Mizzou guy, are not going to be happy to know that I actually picked KU to win in that second pool. And that helped me to score so high. Sorry, sorry, but I'll put I'll put aside a little pride uh, to, for the ego, I think, you know, and that and that that was good. And then the third bracket, I was still like 78 percentile. Well, I've done the same thing this year. I've got three different 
winners, three different brackets. So we'll see. The third one's really nuts. I, I think I have, I remember like, like in the Elite Eight, I've got two double-digit seeds in there. But, you know, you just never know about those things. And by the way, skill doesn't matter. If you've ever done this, you know that. It's the person down at the end of your office who couldn't tell you, you know, what a Missouri Tiger is, let alone what the colors of Mizzou is, even though her son might be going to Mizzou. I mean, you're talking about someone like that and usually beats you in the office pool. The person who actually is addicted to college basketball and knows the statistics of the third string guard at Boise State, that person never wins. So it doesn't even matter. And I think that's the the joy and the beauty of such a thing, because it really is um, a a crapshoot. So anyway, I digress, folks. I, um, you know, as I get older, now that I'm in my 60s, and um, I hate to say that I've become a little bit more of a curmudgeon and a get off my lawn kind of guy, but um, I fear that part of my persona is leaning in that direction. I, I really have to fight it because things bother me more. It's the, um, it's the slow driver in the fast lane of the highway. I, I've never been a big fan of that. It's annoying, but now I just get, it just like upsets me. Like, why is this person so stupid? Who is this person? Don't they know the rules that you're not supposed to be over there? By the way, I've talked to people who don't even know that's actually against the law. They think it's a suggestion. They think it's courtesy. I guess the reason they don't know it's against the law is because it's hardly ever enforced. But you do occasionally see signs, depending on the highway, that says slower vehicles move to the right. But I've talked to people who don't even know that that's part of it. I'm like, what are they teaching in driver's ed anymore? But you still see older you know, people my age over there. So I, I don't get it. So that's just one example of thing. It, you're at some big conference and there are a lot of people. And it's the guy over there just flicking his pen. He doesn't realize it. He's in this zone. It's just click, click, click. I, I want to go and jam that pen that stuff didn't used to bother me as much. What is happening to me? Well, one thing that's always been in my crawl, and even more so, are hypocrites. Now, we all have a little hypocrisy in us, all right? We're all human, and sometimes what we say and what we do don't exactly align, okay? But sometimes it's so egregious that I really want to shout to the heavens it just angers me i mean you're you're uh, give you a couple of examples someone um let me think oh so you have someone who's really into who's kind of a climate change warrior i have no whatever i have no issues with that in particular but yet doesn't walk the walk someone who is flying around in a private jet to climate change conferences and is expending more carbon emissions into the atmosphere than I will in six months, then wants to tell me how I need to change my lifestyle. That is a hypocrite of the highest level, and I can't stand it. Um, uh, oh, here's, I'm going to step on some toes, perhaps. I don't know why this would bother anybody, but you occasionally see some high-profile pastor 
is railing against, let's say, homosexuality, and yet we find out later what he's been doing in his private life. Enough said. That is the epitome of, of hypocrisy and projection, if you will. I say this because I was reminded of my uh, real problems with hypocrisy when we look at the issues of what's been happening with Silicon Valley Bank, and in this case, with the other bank that's gone under that hasn't had nearly the same attention, New York-based Signature Bank. Now, they went under for different reasons. Well, the same reasons. There was a run on the bank, but it wasn't tech-related as much it was crypto-related. In a way, there's some technology, obviously, based there. But uh, because the crypto industry has been in such turmoil lately, banks who have decided to go all in and bet on that fledgling industry have been really hurt. And that finally got to the point where there was a run on the deposits at Signature Bank, and they too had to be bailed out. Now, where's the hypocrisy there? Oh, just one of the guys who helped write the Dodd-Frank legislation back in 2010, coming out of the Great Recession that put all kinds of onerous rules and regulations on banks, and in particular, on smaller banks that have had huge costs to try to abide by the same rules as their bigger brethren, and it's really hurt them. Somebody who helped write that has now suddenly changed his tune because it benefited him personally. Yeah, I got a problem with that, and I need to address it um, because there are some other issues involved here that might we might see come to fruition in other ways that are not exactly beneficial to all of us. I'm being a little cryptic. It's what we call a tease in the media business. So bear with me. I'll dig into that when we come back. You're listening to At Your Service. My name is Dave Simon. Stay with us. Welcome back, my friends. The clock just turned at 9 20 in St. Louis. Welcome back. You're listening to At Your Service. Dave Simons filling in tonight. Yeah, speaking of clocks, man, um, it was interesting getting ready for this show and how light it was still. I eight o'clock really jumped up on me quickly. And because I'm down in Texas, um, even on the eastern side, I'm still obviously west of St. Louis, so it stays lighter even longer here. Um, it was still light here till um well after 7 30, and I thought, oh man. Show's coming up in less than 30 minutes. I I was, you know, you kind of go by the sunlight. At least I've been used to it since last fall. Um, but I love it, man. Uh, and apparently, I guess this this could be it. I, I don't know where that stands legislatively. If we're going to forever stay with the uh, daylight savings, I'm all for it. But I think if I was the parent of a child, let's say in elementary school, I would not be in favor of it. Because you're out there sending your kids to the bus stop for most of the school year in the dark. You never get a break, but I digress. All right, so back in 2010, something called Dodd-Frank was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Obama. And it, um, you know, it set tougher regulatory safeguards on banks. And 
I was okay on the surface with it because something had to be done. Banks were too loosey-goosey with rules, and that was part of the implosion that we had with the Great Recession. Yeah, it was uh, the housing industry imploded, but the banks were certainly part of that mess. And so looking at trying to rectify that uh, was well-intentioned and something needed to be done. But it, as typical with Congress, just putting layer after layer after layer, and every politician wants to have their little signature moment with an iconic piece of legislation like that. And it just became too unwieldy. And one of my big problems that came out of this, I didn't think about it at the time, but one of the issues that we saw coming out of Dodd-Frank was the fact that smaller and medium-sized banks were really hurt by this because of the huge costs that um, they had to incur keeping up with these new rules and regulations, the same costs and the same rules and regs that the big boys had to abide by. There was that limit of $50 billion. If you were under $50 billion, you didn't have to abide by much of what Dodd-Frank had to say. Over 50 you did. Well, just think if you had 52 billion, it's like, oh man, can we just stop growing and maybe even like fire a few depositors and get back under there? Well, um, a few years later, 2015 to be exact, then um, actually Barney Frank had, had left Congress by then. So that's the, that's the Frank part of the Dodd-Frank bill. And Barney Frank now uh, in 2015 joins the board of a New York based bank called Signature Bank. Again, more traditional at the time, just like Silicon Valley Bank was 40 years ago. But Signature decided to make hay by getting into more speculative type of business, and they went all in on crypto. And that's one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, they are no more. They're one of two banks to have gone under here in uh, in the past week. Barney Frank has been on their board since 2015. Now remember, he was the co-author. He was the principal writer of that bill that kept 50 billion as a number. Well, when he joined Signature, guess how much money Signature Bank had in deposits? A little bit more than 50 billion, but not close to 200 or 250 billion. So Barney Frank See, Signature was smart, as, as a lot of these companies do. I don't like it. I don't think any of us like the cronyism that occurs between business and politics, but it occurs. We know that. And so Signature Bank decides, why not have an influential former politician on our board to get things done? So Barney Frank earned about $2.5 million in compensation since 2015 on that board. Not a bad gig by just sitting on a board. And that's just, um, uh, most of that's income. Some of that is in, in stock, which isn't worth nearly as much, of course. So Barney Frank starts putting pressure on people in Congress. Hey, you know that, um, you know that famous, well-known piece of legislation that I co-authored? It's got my name on it. And it's $50 billion and above. We need to change that. Why is that, Barney? Well, as it turns out, now that I'm actually on the board of Signature Bank, I, I know that, man, this these costs are very onerous to these smaller, medium-sized banks. We need to get that number up. Let's say, um, I don't know, just pull a number out of my head, $250 billion. Oh, okay, um, former Congressman Frank. All right, let's take a look at that. So in 2018... 
Congress repealed parts of Dodd-Frank. And part of that repealing was to raise the limit of the banks who have to abide by Dodd-Frank from the former minimum of $50 billion all the way up to $250 billion. Now, people have pointed this hypocrisy out to Barney Frank and said, uh, excuse me, Mr. Frank, um, now that you actually work for a bank that was under those rules and regs that you wrote, but now that you're at the board and can benefit by not having to abide by those same rules that you wrote, um, you got it changed, and now you sit on a bank that maybe could have been saved if they were under those former onerous rules. And so he's really had to backpedal. And a lot of these quotes, um, he says it was a good change back in 2015. Quote, it saved smaller banks a lot of paperwork. Yeah, you didn't know that when you were helping to write that? Remember I talk about hypocrisy? Uh, the Wall Street Journal really called it out. And by the way, this is not a Democrat-Republican diatribe. I hope you've picked up on that. I've not mentioned either party. This is one individual, and it happens on both sides. It's, it's hypocrisy, front and center. And I can't stand it. So the Wall Street Journal basically took the quotes of Barney Frank, who's, basic, who's saying, ah, no, that rollback of the legislation had nothing to do with it. It was all about this mass hysteria and this run on crypto. And he, he literally pointed to Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, and he said, they're to blame. Nothing else. And so the Wall Street Journal writes, and I'll just read one sentence from the editorial. If Mr. Frank is right, he now knows how hundreds of thousands of other people in business feel when regulators panic for political reasons and look for business businesses to shut or blame. And by the way, I also like to point out facts and figures and point out where people are getting too political and it's based on things just to prove a point or to make a point when it's not based on reality. And the same thing is happening here. Now, I am no apologist for Donald Trump. I'm not even going to go down that road. I won't. I'm just telling you, I am not an apologist for that man and I will leave it at that. However, I'm never afraid to pull, to pull out the truth and push back on people. And so there are those who are really going after Trump to say it's all his fault that some of this was happening because he rolled back some of these rules and regulations that, by the way, Barney Frank wanted rolled back before Donald Trump even took the White House. Also, it was bipartisan. Nearly a quarter of Senate Democrats also voted for the rollback in 2018, and Fed Chairman Jay Powell himself supported it, saying after the fact in 2019 that he was all in. And I'm paraphrasing, but he supported the rollback. So can we stop getting political and pointing to one guy because you hate him? And like I said, I'm no apologist for the guy, and that's all I'll say. So it was bipartisan, and I had no problem rolling it back. My friends, this was not Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and Barney Frank is correct about this. I'm just pointing out his hypocrisy um, because he rolled back his own legislation because it served him personally. But he's correct. These banks were going to fail because of incompetence, because of hubris, 
greed, mismanagement. You know, Silicon Valley Bank did not have a risk control officer for eight months last year. Their risk control officer resigned and they did not replace her. The CEO himself said, now I'll kind of wear that hat too for a while. For eight months, you think he had any real time to look at that? While they were incurring huge losses in their bond portfolio, which really led to all this? Of course not. So there are no heroes in this story. None. Only culprits. You can certainly start with the folks who are running Silicon Valley Bank. It really does start there. You can look at regulators. Where were they? You can look at the analyst community. They are paid big bucks to look at the financials of these companies. And they didn't see that there were any potential problems. There were buy ratings on the stock across the board. You can also look at the auditors, KPMG. Oh, man, I would hate to have been on the team that was in charge of auditing their books. The most recent audit was approved in late February, just a few weeks ago. They didn't notice anything? You're signing off on an audit in late February, and three weeks later, you're bankrupt? You're out of business? Uh, I think there's more to come out there, I would think. I'm not on the inside. Maybe not, but that seems a little strange to me. How do you legislate any of that away? Elizabeth Warren, of course, has been going crazy about all this and just saying more rules, more regulations, more red tape. You can't legislate away stupidity, and that's the problem. You think that this is all going to go away now? No, we can put a lot more rules and regulations in place, and somebody else is going to be greedy and do something stupid without really even breaking any laws. Folks, we can go back 100 years. Do I need to give you one example after another? I mean, this has occurred since limited partnerships went under in the 80s, the junk bond market went under, uh, the tech bubble bursting, and you had companies like Enron and WorldCom that were fraudulent, Bernie Madoff. Ever since then, more rules, more red tape, more onerous legislation. I get it. Sometimes it does help. But did it prevent this latest fiasco? Will it prevent the next one? It's up to us as individuals. We have to take care of ourselves, all right? We have to do our own due diligence. We have to manage our own risk. I I even started this segment by t- or earlier this hour talking about that I'm not a gambler. I don't go to casinos because I hate losing money. That's how I've lived my life. I take calculated risks, of course. And sometimes it does backfire, but I want to make sure that any mistakes that I may, any well-intentioned mistakes, ultimately will not prevent my own financial plan from, uh, from working properly down the road. And you learn from those mistakes and you move on, but you've got to stay away from the hot topics of, of social media because that leads to bad conclusions. You have to ignore all the hawking of politicians who are telling you that the other side is so bad and that gets you all riled up. And then you go to the cable news shows and now you're all riled up and it turns out you don't know a thing because they don't know a thing. Man, I've got it on my soapbox here getting going, but I, I but it does anger me. Because all this is going to cause our politicians who want to get in front of the cameras and act like they're doing something wonderful for the common man when really it doesn't help at all. And then you have people like Barney Frank, who did all of that in 2010, went into the private sector and said, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done all that. I want to repeal some of it. 
folks, do your own homework. Keep your own rules and regulations. Seriously, abide by those. Live comfortably, but live responsibly, and you'll be fine. And just tune out the noise, because that's what a lot of this, frankly, is. Now, what is the Fed going to do from here? Some are saying they're not going to raise rates anymore because of this. I think they still will, but I think that's a mistake. And I want to dig into that because they're coming up at the next meeting. And I'll explain why I think they're going to raise rates, but why I think that could be a potential problem. Stay with us, folks. You're listening to At Your Service. Dave Simon's filling in tonight. I'll be right back. My friend, so um, I was on Camo X this morning with Debbie Monterey and Carol Daniel and the gang, and I reminded them of a dollars and cents show I hosted earlier this year talking about the Fed and raising rates. And I said that the Fed will will keep raising rates until something breaks. Well, it broke in the form of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and the mess that we have now. And I said at the time, that Wall Street was calling the Fed's bluff, and in particular, Jay Powell, and that was a mistake. Now, I, and I understand why Wall Street would do that, because they have been used to Fed chairman ever since Greenspan and through Bernanke and others of uh, folks acquiescing to market demands. Stop raising rates. We don't like it. Uh, there was the so-called taper tantrum of about a decade ago. And sure enough, Bernanke said, okay, okay, I'll stop raising rates because the markets were starting to, to pull back. And in a way, we saw a little bit of that with Jay Powell in his early days. And he showed that he was also more than willing to acquiesce to the demands of Wall Street, even as recently as a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago when he was saying that inflation was transitory, don't worry about it. And we all know that that was wrong. So in this Latest iteration, I can see why Wall Street would think that Jay Powell, at the first sign of any economic trouble, would stop raising rates. And I said, I don't think so this time. He knows what he doesn't want his legacy to be that of Fed Chairman Arthur Burns of the 70s when he just let inflation get out of control because he would raise rates and then stop at the first sign of weakness. And he never could contain it. And then it took Paul Volcker in the early 80s to just kill it, but in a, in a really harsh way that brought us into a deep recession in the early 80s. Well, Jay Powell doesn't want that on his resume. And you could just tell in the way that Powell has talked very sternly, very firmly, that he means business this time. He's got religion now, and, and I've taken him at his word. And Wall Street never seemed to have come around to that. And that's why I said earlier that I think he's going to keep raising rates into the face of clear weakness until something breaks. And now that we're here, a big firm like Goldman Sachs just came out yesterday and said that they believe that the Fed now will not raise rates anymore because of what has happened in the last week. And I still disagree. At their next meeting, what, in a week? Yeah, I think it's next week, I believe. Um, I think they're going to raise rates uh, again, but I think it's only going to be a quarter of 1%. 
there was a good chance because of recent hot employment and inflation numbers that they were going to raise rates by another half of 1% at their March meeting coming up. I think that's definitely off the table. Now, I'm not 100% confident in this assertion. I think that there is a chance that they may actually do what Goldman is predicting and then just take a month off, take six weeks off and not do anything with interest rates until this thing blows through. But I don't know about that, man. This Powell seems certain, and he they are, and he says this all the time. We are data driven. Well, there's still lots of data that shows inflation is not cooling nearly as fast as as they wanted. It happened again today, by the way. I don't know if I have time to get to it uh, in more detail, but the latest CPI number came out, and some parts were in line with ex- expectations, but other parts were hotter than expected. Now, that's backward looking. All of that came out, obviously, well before we've had this banking crisis. I would be in favor of saying, Fed, stop. All right. Something has broke. People got panicked. And you have to know when you raise rates, it takes months, if not a couple of quarters, for those rate hikes to filter through the economic engine. So even their most recent hikes haven't done their dirty work yet you are naturally going to see more slowing of inflation. I would not keep piling on here. I think you're going to overdo it. But I think Powell is probably going to raise rates at at least a a quarter of 1%. It's amazing to me. These folks who sit on the Fed know more about the history of economics and truly the, the intellectual part of economics. They've probably forgotten more than I know. I admit that. But is it possible that sometimes you could have too much knowledge of a particular situation and it clouds your judgment? Is that possible? That you read so much in a textbook, your head is buried in that book, and you don't really see the reality that's above you. And I think that that is true sometimes with the Fed. This is is crazy to me. Former Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher. Some of you who are really into this will remember Richard Fisher. Well, he was, and he still appears on CNBC, and he's got some good things to say now and then. But yesterday, I was floored. He said that the Fed should just keep on hiking rates. Keep on going. Doesn't matter about the upheaval in the banking sector and the financial markets. Nope, just keep hiking. Well, David Rosenberg, an economist who I have followed gosh, since the mid two, maybe 20 years, maybe since the early 2000s. Um, Boy, he did a great job doing this. So I'm stealing this from him. He also was listening to Richard Fisher and it floored him as well. And he reminded us all, um, did David Rosenberg, about what Fisher did back in 2008. Remember what was going on then? Yeah, the, we had financial Armageddon like we've never seen since the Great Depression. So at their meeting at the FOMC, the Fed meeting, June 24th and 25th of 2008, you talk about things breaking. It was a cacophony of things breaking at the time, and it was going to even get worse. The Fed, by the way, had been raising rates in 2007 and into early eight, but but they had stopped. Richard Fisher didn't like that. He's an inflation hawk. And he wanted to keep raising rates. 
So here, Rosenberg reprinted some of the notes that came out of that meeting in 2008. Now, it's easy in hindsight to know what was about to happen. I get that. But it is interesting in hindsight, as we put these notes in perspective, remember, this is on the eve of everything just absolutely dropping off a cliff in September and October of 08. This is just a few months before in late June of 08, and the Fed is voting whether to keep raising interest rates. They wrote this, recent information indicates that overall economic activity continues to expand, partly reflecting some firming in household spending. However, labor markets have softened further, and financial markets remain under considerable stress. Yeah, you might say so tight credit conditions, the ongoing housing contraction, and the rise in energy prices are likely to weigh on economic growth over the next few quarters. And so actually that was well written. Everything was spot on. So the FOMC at that point decided to keep the federal funds rate, the Fed funds rate at 2%. So that's where it was. It was pretty low. As we now know, today the Fed funds rate runs between four and a half and 4.75. I still believe Powell wants to get it to at least five to five and a quarter. That's just my own opinion. But back then in 2008 it was 2%. So it was pretty low. It reflected some of the issues that were occurring at the time. Everybody on the FOMC voted to keep the Fed funds rate at 2% back then, except one person. And I'm reading it here. Voting against was Richard W. Fisher, who preferred an increase in the target for the federal funds rate at this meeting. So keep that in mind when here you go again, Richard Fisher is on CNBC yesterday saying, I think the Fed should keep raising rates. <sighs> you know this thing called deja vu? I just kind of had that thought as I was thinking about what Richard Fisher said back in 08, which would have been even more damaging to an already fractured economy in 2008. Fortunately, we don't have that those kinds of fractures and fissures in our economy this time, but it's not because of Richard Fisher doing anything right, and he's at it again. My vote would be for the Fed not to do anything, but I fear they will, and that could cause issues later this year we shall see and we shall be right back you are listening to at your service on KMOX. all right folks we're closing out another edition of at your service so happy to spend a couple of hours with you down in the lone star state coming back to St. Louis here in just a few days. And as I had mentioned earlier, I'm down here because of my uh, daughter uh, getting married down near Austin on Saturday night. And I started out the show tonight at uh, during the 8 o'clock hour, basically saying that the uh, most surreal and exhilarating time of my entire life was watching both of my kids come into life, being right there in the room. And I mean, I got down there. I'm just going to, you can picture that how you want. But I was watching the very tip top of their heads come into this world, and I was floored both times. 
And, um, oh my gosh, I just start to tear up even thinking about that. And I always just considered both those moments would be the best days of my life. And they, and I, I think they really still are, but I would almost have to do now a one B and I wasn't expecting that. My daughter's wedding, my oldest child, and this is a father of the bride thing. And some of you, many of you perhaps have gone through that. And I know it would be a special day, but my goodness, uh, there were two moments in time that I just broke down. And the first, I didn't know that this was a thing. I'm kind of naive about this stuff, I admit, that there is a moment where the dad walks in and sees his daughter for the first time in her wedding dress. This is before, of course, she goes down the aisle with me and all that stuff. I, I guess I knew that, but I didn't. And maybe not every, every wedding might do this a little differently, but this was really played up. And so they had a videographer and the camera people inside the room getting my reaction. I, did, I didn't know they were in there with my daughter. I thought it would just be her and my wife. And the door opens and there is the most gorgeous, beautiful young lady my daughter sitting like she's a model in this flowing white wedding dress. And I was just undone. And there are pictures of me just, I, I I'm tearing up right now thinking about it. I wasn't expecting that. And those are the things that really break you, right? It, I can prepare for the father of the bride speech and I held, I held it up. I cried in practice, but once I got up there, I was good. I didn't expect that. The other moment was waiting with my daughter arm in arm behind the closed doors that go into the sanctuary. Everybody's in there. The music's starting. You can hear it. And you know that all the bodies now have turned to the closed doors and they're waiting for the grand entrance. This isn't about me, of course. This is about her. And we were just kind of talking. I made sure she was okay. And then it dawned on me. I said to her, I feel like we're on a roller coaster. And we're right at the very top. And those doors are going to open and zero to 60 in a half a second. And she smiled. She said, Dad, that's exactly what I'm feeling. And then the doors open and whoop, there we go. And the feeling I had taking those first few steps, I started to lose it again. Now, there's a picture of me. There's a picture of me in seeing my daughter for the first time it's like oh my gosh look at this mess of a guy and there's a pair of me early walking down and i hadn't yet broke down yet it was later i haven't seen those pictures i've just seen the preliminary things i'm posting a couple of these on my weekly commentary that i send out to friday to subscribers and you'll see exactly what i'm talking about these beautiful this picture of me entering the room where my daughter is and then the picture of me walking down the aisle and that's why those two unexpected, I knew that the moments were going to happen. I didn't expect how I would feel at the time and how overwhelming. I hadn't prepared for that. And this whole weekend will go down as the very tip top of my life. It just will. And I only have one daughter. So that's it. I've got one son. I assume he'll get married someday, but okay, it's going to be different, obviously. And it's one of these things, there are so many moving parts. My wife was the most awesome wedding planner. She was the one, she did it all with my daughter. They worked their butts off. And all of these issues that could have gone wrong, it went off without a hitch. So I'm 
So thankful that you indulged me at the end as we moved away from some of this other stuff about Silicon Valley Bank and talked about the things ultimately that matter most to us, and that is the love of our family. Folks, have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you again soon.